Welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Maddie. I'm Amelia. And we're both clinical psychologists and research fellows at Macquarie University. Today is our final episode of the season. We're taking a little break and we will be back. So in a way, we're just putting the podcast to sleep for just a little, for a little while, bit, which is very fitting for the theme of this episode. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Celie Richardson from the University of Western Australia. Celie is a clinical psychologist and lecturer, and her research focuses mainly on sleep problems in young people. Sleep is a really important part of practice as a psychologist or a mental health clinician in general, and Celie's episode should hopefully emphasize to you how common sleep difficulties will be in the clients that you see, and also how important sleep problems are in development and maintenance of mental health disorders. So please listen and then train up in sleep because it's super interesting. So if you can't tell, Amelia is obsessed with sleep. You didn't let me finish. <laughs> I probably, you, you, while I was talking, you were looking at me with my fists <laughs> and my eyes really wide. So that's fair enough. I need to just come down a peg. As someone not so obsessed with sleep, I still found it interesting. So I think everyone out there will too. Definitely. I think most people will have a lot of new things to learn and take away. Am I sounding a bit calmer about it now? Yeah. <laughs> so please enjoy. Getting excited again. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Celie. Lovely to have you with us. Fantastic to be here. Thanks. The first thing we thought we'd want to know from you is for the everyday clinician who's probably seeing people in private practice with anxiety, depression, and a range of other common difficulties, in what ways do you think sleep problems will show up for those people, um, what might clinicians see if they were to really start to assess for sleep problems in the general community? Well, I think um, a lot of clients will report difficulty sleeping, so they might kind of come across sleep problems just kind of at an ad hoc basis. But if you really thoroughly assess for the presence of sleep problems in young people with depression and anxiety, um, about 90% of these young people have sleep problems. Oh um, and these range from... Difficulty falling asleep, having long awakenings across the night. It could be more about the timing of their sleep. Maybe they're not falling asleep until the early hours of the morning and having a lot of difficulty waking up to kind of get to school or get to work and things like that. So mm. funny. I was expecting you to say 50% for some Same. reason. And then it kind of took me a while to be like, wait, she didn't say 50, she said 90. <laughs> so yeah, the vast, vast majority of young people with yeah, mental health problems like depression and anxiety do have comorbid sleep problems. I wonder if that's also the case for adults. Is there similar prevalence there or is it typically more common during developmental windows like adolescence? Uh, I think the kind of comorbidity would be similar in adult populations as well. If so many people are presenting with sleep difficulties, do clinicians typically know how to assess for sleep problems? Do they know that so many people are having those difficulties or is it something that often goes under the radar? I think maybe there is a bit of an underappreciation for just how prevalent sleep problems are in general, but also as a comorbid kind of presenting mm. issue. Clinicians might be confident to kind of ask a couple of screening questions, but may not feel like they have tools in their arsenal to do a really kind of thorough assessment for sleep problems. And that makes sense if they kind of haven't had much of that training. Mm, which Maddie and I reflected is is kind of reflects both of our training yeah. um it wasn't a very 
widely explored topic. No, I just all. read a sleep manual and then I was like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. <laughs> I don't think I did. So <laughs> considering how commonly these problems co-occur, a lot of C's, <laughs> is there a common direction? So might be a bit of a chicken or egg thing here, but do pre-existing difficulties with say anxiety or depression cause problems with sleep? Can it be the opposite? How do those two things relate to one another? So there's uh, definitely bidirectionality there, of course. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you look at the DSM criteria for a whole range of different disorders, you see that sleep comes up in, you know, the majority of different disorders Mm -hmm. there as a a symptom or a possible kind of presentation. Um, I think this does sleep a little bit of a disservice because it sets the clinician up to think that it is just kind of a byproduct or a symptom Mm -hmm. of the other presentation. Exactly. And that perhaps it isn't a problem in its own right. The way that we think about sleep problems really has an important impact for treatment as well, because if you see sleep problems as just a symptom of their other kind of presentation, um, you're unlikely to maybe directly address sleep in treatment, particularly with, say, young people with depression. These types of treatments often don't directly address sleep and sleep doesn't improve as a kind of indirect result of treatment for depression. The residual sleep problems that aren't addressed act as a risk factor for relapse of MDD in young people, for example. So it highlights the importance of kind of seeing both presentations and and addressing both if they are present. Mm. In terms of, I guess, more of the bidirectionality between sleep and mental health, for, say, young people with depression, there's more evidence that sleep problems tend to precede the onset of depression. But for presentations like anxiety, it is quite common that the anxiety disorder would present first and then sleep problems would come about uh, sort of afterwards. But of course, yeah, it can happen in the other kind of directions. Fascinating. So does that mean that if you were to have uh, two different clients, one who had depression and sleep difficulties and one who had anxiety and sleep difficulties, this is a very broad stroke approach, uh, <laughs> generalizing here, but would a clinician have more bang for buck if they were to treat the anxiety first and they would see resulting improvements in sleep, whereas if you had uh, the person with depression and sleep, you should be targeting both at the same time or placing a bigger role on sleep? Well, some of the research that we've done uh, at Flinders University while I was there during my PhD, um, I was involved in a clinical trial that I was running and then also um, another PhD project that was running at the same time. So we were looking at improvement in both depression and anxiety in a couple of different sleep presentations. And what we found was that by treating sleep problems, we saw both a decrease in depressive symptoms and in anxiety symptoms in younger children. So even if they're kind of co-occurring, there is evidence, at least from labs that I've been a part of, that treating the sleep problem can help to address both depression and anxiety. Yeah, on its own, even without touching the depression or anxiety. Particularly for young people, say with depression, sleep might be something that's a little bit easier for them to address in the first instance. So you can get good improvement in both their kind of sleep problem and symptoms of depression quite early on, which could give them kind of faith that treatment can work and it could kind of reduce fatigue and things like that, which could then improve subsequent engagement with treatment for depression. So we've spoken a lot about sleep and general mental health, but there's all this stuff about sleep and general physical health and cognitive functioning as well, like memory and attention, which makes me think that treating it early might be 
beneficial for a number of reasons. Mm. Have you are you familiar with? Is there evidence to suggest that that's the case for more than just mood improvements? Sleep is such a pervasive thing, and it affects almost every kind of facet of our life. So. Yeah, sleep is linked to a whole range of things like um, not just mental health, but physical health, increases risk for different kind of physical health conditions, cognitive performance, overall kind of well-being. And so by improving sleep, you can kind of improve that whole range of other outcomes as well, which, yeah, hopefully just serves to improve that person's engagement with treatment. Mm, mm. That's so cool. So targeting sleep, if you've noticed your client has a difficulty with sleep early on, is likely to have flow and effects to their everyday life they'll be you know more attentive during the day they might be able to focus more on treatment and that means that those gains that you would see are going to be even bigger yeah I would say so we obviously need to kind of develop the evidence base around that uh, more but I'm certainly an advocate for that approach and with regard to sleep treatments they are really fairly simple uh, often behavioral treatments that can be administered over you know one or two sessions and then monitored thereafter so doesn't really take up that much time but I think just a fantastic approach. One thing that kind of sticks out to me when I'm thinking about the role of someone's sleep in their mental health is someone's use of their mobile phones. Is that a misconception that people's phone use impacts their sleep negatively or is it actually a thing? Um, This is something that I wanted to kind of bring up I guess later on (laughs) in the the misconception. Ah. (laughs) Um, so definitely there is a robust association cross-sectionally between technology use and sleep okay and this relationship is spread I guess by the popular media but really the relationship is small in terms if we're talking about effect size the relationships uh, tend to be small and the relationship is much more complex than we're led to believe wow okay oh I'm so interested um, (laughs) so um, some research that I've uh, published just within the last month actually with some of the raw project team at Macquarie University showed that the relationship between sleep and technology use is bi-directional as well common for young people to become more evening orientated um, across adolescence and that evening kind of preference actually predicts increased technology use Um, Technology use is then associated with things like sleep duration over time, but it's sort of a cyclical um, issue. And there is growing evidence that people do actually use technology as a bit of a sleep aid as well. So maybe if they're not able to fall asleep quickly or until kind of later on at night, then people might be engaging in technology use to aid sleep onset. Mm. This might be kind of the lesser of two evils if it's preventing someone from engaging in repetitive negative thinking or other kind of unhelpful thinking patterns or behaviours, then it might be better to kind of take more of a harm minimization approach when it comes to technology use. So you really kind of need to, to delve into this issue kind of um, with your clients more deeply before just having a blanket rule about kind of removing technology use depends a lot upon the individual as well I guess the type of technology they're using and a whole range of other factors it's definitely more complex than just saying you know don't use your phone after 9 p.m or something as an example my partner cannot get to sleep without rain sounds right Mm. plays them off his phone but that means that if he didn't have that aid with him because he had to put the phone in the living room or something before he went to bed then he wouldn't actually get to sleep so it's not necessarily that all use of your phone is bad 
I think so. Um, there's a whole range of different mechanisms by which technology use could affect sleep um, as well. So I guess you often hear about kind of the bright screen light, but mm. then it depends what you're kind of engaging with through that technology, whether it's something that's cognitively like alerting you a lot before sleep or whether it is something that relaxes you. Uh, so you really kind of need to be thinking about those sort of mechanisms and the role that the technology use plays for that person. And I would guess as well in an adolescent population, taking a bit of a purist, no phones after 8pm, put it on charge in the kitchen, you might be risking some engagement issues if if that's a blanket rule. And especially, it's an interesting um, concept about like, do we be puristic about this or do we take a more harm minimization approach? Like if someone who sleeps quite well can't get to sleep without listening to an audiobook, like, is that really a big problem? In that case, you need to think about, um, I guess, how unhelpful it is for that individual rather than having a blanket rule. But particularly in terms of young people and control of technology use, in the paper that we published earlier this month, we did also look at the role of parental control of technology use Interesting. Um, and the relationship longitudinally. And uh, rather than parental control of technology use predicting decreases in technology use or improved sleep, it actually went the other way around. Oh, so no. <laughs> if, if their teenagers are using technology less and they're sleeping well, then they perceive that they have more control over technology use over time rather than the inverse. And I guess that shows that parenting is really a kind of dynamic process and um, the way that you kind of parent your child is influenced by the child themselves and their behaviours. Yeah, I definitely see that. I wonder when we're speaking about treatment for sleep difficulties, especially during adolescence, how much of a role is there for other family members, especially Mm. the parents, rather than working one-on-one with the adolescent? I think it's important where possible to have the whole family on board. I guess there's a lot of psychoeducation around sleep and things as well. Um, And so it helps to have everyone on the same page and have the same kind of level of knowledge about sleep. And having the parent on board can also really help support the young person in making changes to their sleep as well. So I think a lot of clinicians and even the public, when they think of sleep difficulties, they think of insomnia, you know, difficulty either falling asleep or staying asleep. But my sense is that there's some more subtypes or more, there's a more diverse group of sleep problems and perhaps even more so in adolescence. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other sleep problems you might see in in that age window or even across the board? Definitely. So I guess there are a couple of two main kind of processes that we talk about in relation to sleep. It's called the two process models. So one is process S, which relates to sleep homeostasis, or how you build up sleepiness across the day. And that's quite closely linked to things like insomnia. The other process is process C. So uh, basically relating to the circadian system or the body clock. Developmentally, what we see, we see changes in both of these processes across the lifespan, but particularly in um, adolescence as they develop, changes in the body clock happen. It's developmentally normal for adolescents to become more evening orientated. They're likely not to want to fall asleep until later, and they obviously want to kind of sleep in and not wake up until later in the morning as well, which can cause a whole range of problems. There is a normative trend for young people to become more evening orientated, and that doesn't start to rectify itself until about 21, 22 years of age, so really into that young adulthood period. And this developmental shift makes young people more at risk for a particular circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder known as delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, Mm -hmm. which is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) 
<laughs> circadian rhythm sleep disorders present a lot like insomnia. So maybe to someone who isn't fairly well-trained in sleep, it might kind of look like insomnia and you might treat it like insomnia, but the etiology of the disorder is different and different kind of treatment approaches are needed. That's a really interesting kind of potential misconception there is at face value, someone might present as having insomnia because they're having trouble falling asleep at nine o'clock at night, but it's actually because they have this biological loading to actually be sleepier later. Um, And I wonder how many parents slash even clinicians think that it's kind of adolescents, they can just get a bit lazy, they like to stay up, they don't like, they like to sleep in, kind of, is that something that you come across clinically? I think that's, yeah, a common misconception that young people are just just lazy, but really there's a lot that's changing in terms of their biology and in terms of their sleep biology that mean that they're, yeah, more evening orientated. Um, Quite often young people do try to comply with sort of a socially normal bedtime. They're trying to get enough sleep before going to school. They'll go to bed earlier, but this is just setting themselves up for failure. It means that they're going to lie awake in bed for, you know, maybe hours. Um, and this can kind of lead to a worsening of the problem. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to touch back on was you mentioned the process S and the process C, and we've been speaking about the kind of circadian rhythm changes in adolescence. You mentioned process S is a lot more, plays a, a stronger role in insomnia. Um, tell us a little bit more about what that process is and and how that then can be disrupted in people with insomnia problems. So process S just refers to in its most basic terms, sort of how we build up sleepiness across the day. So from when we wake up in the morning and across wakefulness, we rapidly kind of accumulate process S or sleepiness until it kind of reaches a saturation point. I'm sure we've all been there where you're just so tired, you can't keep your eyes open anymore. So that build up of sleep pressure helps us to fall asleep quickly, um, but it also helps us to stay asleep across the night. And individuals with insomnia could engage in different behaviours that kind of disrupt the build-up of sleep pressure. Uh, for example, napping would be something that could disrupt the build-up of, of sleep pressure. So if, if you have an afternoon nap, basically you're decreasing your sleep pressure that you'll then have for your nighttime sleep. So that mm-hmm. can lead to difficulty falling asleep and then staying asleep. Another common thing that individuals with insomnia do is they think maybe they just need to try harder in order to sleep, and that could involve spending longer time in bed, but that also can kind of disrupt the build-up of sleep pressure. Yeah, and if you're kind of trying to conserve energy across the day as well, that can then result in you not having as much sleep pressure as if you were kind of active and going about your day as you normally would. The behavioural kind of treatments for insomnia that we use commonly target that process. So that's interesting. I think a lot of people would know that a crucial part of sleep hygiene is don't nap in the Mm. afternoon. It's useful to know why. But I'm new to the knowledge that even resting or trying to conserve energy during the day, does that slow the buildup of sleep pressure? Yeah, so I guess if you're using up energy, then you're basically building up sleep pressure at a faster rate. And it's really that critical kind of massive sleep pressure that helps you to fall asleep quickly and stay asleep across the night. Um, If you've got a lot of sleep pressure, then that also relates to your sleep architecture across the night as well. So if you're very sleepy, there's some flexibility in the system to adjust how much light and deep sleep that you have. So if you're very sleepy, you're likely to spend longer in deep sleep, which builds 
much nicer and more restorative for people as well. I have an analogy that may or may not be applicable. <laughs> so imagine you have a Coke bottle, right? And that is the process S bottle. Oh, yeah. Okay? And then your activities during the day, so if you like run or you go to work or you like do things, is if the, you're shaking the Coke bottle and you're building the pressure in the Coke bottle, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you nap, you release that pressure you a little open bit the bottle. and you open the bottle. And Did at you the just end think of, of that? I just thought of it. It's pretty good. <laughs> that is a fantastic analogy yeah. and, and one that end, I might use. You're welcome, Celie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do have our own analogy, particularly that we use with um, kids and families, I guess, which is a bit of a cutesy analogy about um, petrol in a petrol tank. So oh, yeah. I guess when, when you sleep and you wake up, you've got a full petrol tank. And as you're going about your day and being active, you're using up petrol in your petrol Mm. and when you don't have any petrol in your petrol tank anymore you fall asleep um, I guess if you nap then you're topping up your petrol tank yes um, you need to think about if you're having difficulties sleeping for example yeah what level of petrol do you have in your petrol tank have you used up enough during the day or is your coke bottle <laughs> just flat <laughs> there's no pressure <laughs> <laughs> When we're thinking about adolescents, typically or very commonly, we have adolescents who go to sleep later and wake up later. It's not necessarily something that's wrong with them. It's just how the body starts working during that period of time. But this ends up having flow-on consequences to getting up for school, participating in their schoolwork during the day and being attentive. So I'm wondering, where's the line between developmentally appropriate sleeplessness I guess because of that and the role for clinicians to intervene and identify that as a problem with their sleep I guess with any sort of psychological presentation it's about the kind of distress and impairment that it's causing Mm. the individual there's obviously a wide kind of spectrum of this I'm not saying that every young person is evening orientated there's obviously morning or intermediate kind of types but there are some people who are real extreme kind of evening types. So that can be very impairing. If you're not able to fall asleep until 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning, you're sleeping kind of way past midday and that doesn't fit with how you want to live your life. You want to be able to attend school. There's all these other things that you want to be able to do. Mm. Um, and in those sorts of cases, it would be warranted that we would step in and, and provide treatment. That's a really nice kind of example as to how sleep problems might be causally related to mood problems. I'm just painting Mm. a picture of somebody who has one of those more extreme sleep phase types who then has to get up for school because school starts irrespective of how much sleep they had. So they're going to school with maybe four or five hours of sleep. They're unable to concentrate. So their overtime academic performance decreases. Socially, they may be not so enjoyable to be around because they're irritable and tired, you know, might even struggle with appetite. And then that can just create this plethora of other social and psychological issues. So it makes a lot of sense why sleep Mm. does predict mood problems. Yeah, 100%. And um, although this is not my kind of area of expertise, there's a lot of kind of biological mechanisms that are kind of happening there as well. Mm. And one mechanism that I'm really interested in as well is the role of repetitive negative thinking. Uh So as I mentioned, obviously, if you're unable to fall asleep until later and you kind of want to naturally wake up later, you might still try and comply with a socially acceptable bedtime. You go to bed when your parents are telling you to go to bed or when you think you should be going to bed, but you end up just kind of lying there awake in the darkness, in the quiet. There's nothing else to do but kind of have these negative thoughts, um, which you can kind of catastrophize over time. We see in young people with sleep problems, this could be sleep related, but not 
specifically sleep related as well. It could be about things that have happened during the day, things that you've got to do tomorrow, your relationships. And so we think that repetitive negative thinking might be kind of a key mechanism as well, linking sleep with the risk for depression. Fascinating. Very interesting. That links back. We had an earlier episode about repetitive negative thinking, Mm. and I find it so interesting that two processes that are transdiagnostic, repetitive negative thinking and sleep, are also interacting with each other across all of the diagnoses. Mm. Like it's just so complicated and I imagine there's just a black box of how those two could be interacting on, you know, a cognitive level and then also a neurobiological level. It's just <laughs> very fascinating to me yeah, as well. Something cool. that I would love to pursue with my research. Something that we've sprinkled through the episode is hints that uh treatment for sleep difficulties is quite behavioral. Oh gosh. No, I'm not going there. Okay. I'm not going Maddie, there. Maddie makes a comment about how important behaviour change is it's in about 75% of episodes. <laughs> She's just about to do it again. I wasn't. I swear I wasn't. I'm okay. going to do that again. <clears throat> Without your... No, I think, that, I think we should keep that bit in. <laughs> what I was going to say was that it's quite behavioural and I want to learn what that looks like. I guess in terms of clinical practice guidelines for insomnia and for circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders as well. The primary kind of component is a behavioral kind of component. For sleep problems such as insomnia, this can include in the first instance something like sleep restriction therapy, also known as bedtime restriction therapy, um, or an alternative approach, which is stimulus-controlled therapy. And both of these treatments sort of work on the same kind of processes. So sleep restriction therapy or bedtime restriction therapy basically involves manipulating the amount of time that you spend in bed. So initially, this would be to reduce the amount of time that you spend in bed to the amount of time you actually think you spend asleep. Mm -hmm. So if you're in bed for eight hours, but only think that you're getting six hours time actually asleep, you would temporarily manipulate bedtime and wake up time so that you're only spending six hours time in bed. Mm. This helps you to build up more sleep pressure before you um, go to bed. Empty the fuel Um, tank, shake up the Coke bottle, whatever. (laughs) Exactly. So that you can fall asleep quickly, stay asleep across the night and hopefully kind of wake feeling more refreshed. And this also helps to target conditioning as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess people with sleep problems often associate the bed and bedroom environment with feelings of frustration and annoyance and that sort of thing. So over time, the individual learns that they can fall asleep quickly and stay asleep across the night. And this helps to kind of recondition how they kind of associate the bed and bedroom. From a practical angle, when we're thinking about, okay, so for instance, someone is in bed between 10 and 6, but they only get five hours of sleep, so you want to reduce it. Do you make them go to bed later or get up earlier? Like, where do you want to be shifting that window? So in that specific example, one thing to note would be that there is a a limit to the amount of sleep restriction. So we would never go beyond sort of five and a half hours time in bed. We would never never restrict to, to less than that. Whoops. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you kind of brought that up just in case someone is, is about to start trying sleep restriction therapy for the first time. Um, but it's really about working with the individual to, to figure out what's going to work best for them. Often it would involve going to bed later, particularly in winter. People just don't want to get up early and sit in cold and dark. So often people prefer to kind of fill their evening with activities, mm. um, watching Netflix or doing whatever. So often it would involve delaying the bedtime. Somebody else could have an affinity for the morning and they could go to bed at the same time and just wake up earlier. So it's about just working with the individual to figure out what's going to work best for them. 
And I should mention that this is just a, a sort of temporary process as well. It sounds a little bit like torture, I guess. You only restrict them for normally sort of a few weeks. And then as they start to fall asleep quickly and stay asleep across the night, you gently give them more time in bed again in 15-minute mm. increments. So you need to keep an eye on how long they're taking to fall asleep and how long they're awake across the night. And even, I mean, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I'm picturing even if someone, say, otherwise would have like a nine-hour time that they spend in bed and only six hours of sleep if you restrict that window then they're probably getting like a few less hours in bed awake frustrated so even if they get less sleep they're probably feeling a little bit less frustrated and angry (laughs) I guess one of the common side effects well yeah side effects or symptoms I guess of insomnia is fatigue so you would think that people with insomnia would feel sleepy but generally we don't see that individuals are sleepy i.e they're not falling asleep in the middle of activity they just feel really fatigued and tired in their body and we think that that fatigue really comes from lying awake in bed feeling frustrated and that kind of hyper arousal so in that regard even if you're you know you're not getting as much sleep potentially you could still end up feeling less fatigued and do people mistake fatigue with sleepiness I think they do yeah so Part of treatment, I guess, is to explain the difference uh, between the two. So, you know, with fatigue, does it feel like you've run a marathon versus sleepy? Are you unable to keep your eyes open? So, yeah, with insomnia, we often see fatigue as the primary presentation. There are other sleep problems such as sleep apnea that are present much more as daytime sleepiness and an inability to stay awake. That's very interesting and so cool to learn that it could be the time in bed feeling anxious about not being able to sleep or frustrated that you haven't fallen asleep yet that's driving that daytime fatigue the next day, not necessarily the lack of sleep. And that links back mm-hmm. to what you were saying in terms of a bi-directional interaction between sleep and your you know, anxiety or depressive symptoms because if someone was more anxious or they had a tendency to engage in repetitive negative thinking more, they're likely to feel even more frustrated, which means they're going to feel more fatigued, which means their sleep difficulties will get worse. And you can just see how, if you were to formulate that, how it would keep being maintained over time. Vicious, vicious cycle. A vicious yeah. cycle. <laughs> you also mentioned stimulus control as another option. Could you tell us a bit more about what that involves? Yeah, so I guess stimulus control therapy is more directly targeting the conditioning, the relationship between the bed and bedroom environment and associations that you you have with that. So with stimulus control therapy, there are a set of quite strict instructions that the individual needs to comply with. So if you get into bed and you try and fall asleep and you're not falling asleep quickly, the instruction would be to get out of bed, kind of sit somewhere comfortable and kind of quiet until you feel ready to fall asleep again and when you think you're ready to try again only getting back into bed um, after that Uh, regardless of the amount of time that you end up sleeping still getting out of bed and waking up and getting out of bed at the same time every morning and so in that regard you can kind of see that sleep restriction therapy and stimulus control therapy target that process because although you're not directly manipulating their time in bed as such they might end up getting less sleep temporarily which builds up that sleep pressure which helps them to fall asleep and stay asleep. Very cool and a lovely elaboration on one of those go-to sleep hygiene worksheets mm. that people provide around use bed only for sleep get out of bed if you're not sleeping but there's the kind of the rationale behind it and it in more depth. 
it sounds like you need a fair bit of motivation and maybe a little bit of willpower to stick with or even try either of those two strategies. So surely having a really solid understanding of what's happening with the processes is going to be what you get buy-in about. I think that just kind of highlights the importance of psychoeducation, just understanding a bit about sleep, which is helpful for everyone, really, whether you have a sleep problem or not. But that's really important in selling the treatment, particularly, obviously, the work that sort of I've been involved in is with children and adolescents. So when you're first trying to sell the idea of sleep restriction therapy to a parent, they understandably be a little bit off put by the kind of name of, of the treatment. But yeah. when they understand the processes that we're trying to target and how the treatment works, then they come on board. But we do often see by the time that people come to the sleep clinic, they've had their sleep problem on average for three plus years. Mm. So at this point, they're often willing to kind of try anything. I guess particularly when there are other kind of mental health things going on, they like depression, you might need to try and involve a bit of motivational interviewing or something like that as well to try and improve buy-in with the treatment and outcomes. Yeah, you're right. Sleep restriction therapy could benefit from a bit of a rebrand. It does sound a little bit scary, doesn't it? But it is a very safe and effective treatment. And makes so much sense based on what we know about those processes as well. So we've spoken a bit about some of the really useful strategies for people with process S or insomnia-related problems. Do they look the same? So say you had a young person who had a really extreme delayed sleep phase disorder presentation where they're having trouble even getting sleepy into the early hours of the morning. What does treatment look like for that kind of a, a, a young person? Yes, yeah, so I guess I highlighted earlier that circadian rhythm sleep disorders can look a little bit like insomnia, but the underlying etiology is different. And because the underlying etiology is different, we have different treatments. So for these types of disorders, we do target process C for the circadian system or the body clock. The primary way that we do that is through uh, manipulation of light and through sleep scheduling. So in the kind of extreme evening type problem that we've spoken about, delayed sleep phase disorder, this would involve restriction of light in the evening. So spending time in dim light so that your body can be naturally producing melatonin, our sleep kind of promoting hormone. And then on the opposite side of that, we would be exposing the individual's eyes to bright light as soon as they wake up. So this is paired with a set sort of sleep schedule as well. So like I said, often people who have an extreme kind of evening body clock might still go to bed earlier. We kind of get rid of that at the start of treatment. So we say you can go to bed when it is that you're roughly falling asleep on average and sleep in until you feel like you've kind of had enough sleep. Mm -hmm. And then basically you move that whole schedule of evening light restriction, their bedtime, their wake up time and exposure to bright light earlier by half an hour each day. The bright light kind of at the start of your day or in the morning helps to push your whole body clock earlier. And that can also be paired with melatonin in the evening. So obviously your body naturally is producing melatonin, but you can supplement that um, with exogenous melatonin as well. So that would need to be done in conjunction with the client GP or some other medical practitioner. Because that's not and over the counter melatonin, right? Quite interesting. So in Australia, you would need a prescription for that melatonin. Uh, but in countries like America, for example, it is available in pharmacies on the shelf. And there's also a couple of different types of melatonin that you can be prescribed as well. So there is fast acting or quick release melatonin, which is what we would use for circadian rhythm sleep wake disorders. But um, I guess GPs and other medical professionals are more aware of sustained or slow release melatonin, which is known as circadian. 
And even though that sounds like, you know, it should be used for treating circadian rhythm sleep disorders, um, it could actually make the sleep problem worse by releasing melatonin through the system over a longer period of time. So this highlights, I guess, how much nuanced kind of knowledge you need to have around sleep and you need to have kind of yeah, good GPs and stuff involved and you really need to know what you're doing as well. Definitely. One thing we ask all of our guests is if you were just to pick one thing that clinicians mm-hmm. could take away, what would it be? So hopefully after listening to the podcast, people will have an appreciation for the importance of assessing and treating sleep problems in people kind of right across the lifespan. Some of my research, I guess, shows that sleep education is really lacking uh, across the globe, but particularly in Australia and particularly in relation to pediatric sleep. The research in a positive way did show that psychologists and other health professionals are seeking out CPD in sleep, but I would really kind of try and hammer that home to people listening to this podcast that Mm. you really need to seek out those opportunities Um, until we can make wider spread reform, I guess, to sleep education for psychologists and other health professionals in Australia. It's really up to individuals to seek out that education and um, I can pretty much guarantee that you're not going to regret it and your clients mm. are going to benefit as a result of that increased knowledge. Mm. I think sometimes when you when you see clinicians and they talk about their toolkits often, it's like, oh, I know these three modalities. I need to know schema therapy now or DBT. Have a look at a completely different presentation that might be underlying 90% so of the young people that you see that might really enhance your outcomes and, and their quality of life. Yeah, so like you mentioned kind of earlier, there's some really key transdiagnostic processes yes. like repetitive negative thinking, like sleep. And so I think it's really worthy of investing a bit of your time in your CPD in working out how to address those transdiagnostic processes. Exactly. Mm, yeah. And we touched on this earlier, but what's a misconception? It can also be the one that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> the relationship between technology use and sleep is kind of the biggest misconception that comes to my mind. It's just something, a message that is just so prevalent and spread by the popular media. And I think really kind of not well-founded. It's obviously much more complex than we're led to believe. And it potentially could be damaging to be telling people to kind of remove technology use altogether if it is serving some kind of uh, important function or is acting as a sleep aid or some sort of coping strategy to deal with repetitive negative thinking, for example. Mm. So just thinking about it a bit more carefully and maybe taking more of a harm minimization approach. Exactly. Inaccurate at best, dangerous at times. Yeah. So I think it's something that we need to do a lot more research on to get more of a nuanced understanding about um, what recommendations around technology use might be helpful for which people. Mm. And that's something that I would love to pursue with my research. Oh, you've just delivered us the next question. And you can pick another one unless that's your favourite. But what is one research question you'd really like to see answered? So I will pick something different for this one. I am interested in technology use, but obviously I'm really kind of passionate about advocating for treating sleep problems to improve other kind of mental health presentations. So there's obviously an emerging evidence base that you should be treating sleep problems to improve other mental health outcomes. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And I'm in the process of setting up a clinical trial at the moment to look at whether adding bright light therapy to the treatment for adolescent depression, whether that improves longer term outcomes, um, particularly things like relapse. Is the only thing you're changing the bright light therapy? You know, there's no psycho about sleep or is there other sleep components to it? 
So as part of Bright Light Therapy, we sort of package psychoeducation as part of that kind of process. So that involves the evening light restriction, morning light exposure, sleep scheduling, psychoeducation. Mm. We'd sort of involve that. Yeah, basically uh, young people are often sitting on wait lists for a long period of time before they can get in to see a psychologist for something like depression. And bright light therapy is something that can be administered over just a couple of weeks. So what I'm really interested in seeing is if we do bright light therapy before starting, in this case, a brief behavioural activation for adolescent um, mm-hmm. depression, does that then improve their outcomes? And so that could have some really great implications for young people on wait lists. Um, if we could get other health professionals in there delivering bright light therapy, they could get improvement in their sleep, improvement in their mood, and then they could engage better with a psychologist later on. Very cool and innovative and kind of cost-efficient uh, way yeah. of thinking about it. it. Reminds me as well. We we spoke to someone in, in a previous episode about exercise, and there are probably similar relationships between exercise and depression. And these potential low intensity kind of you don't need a, a highly trained, highly skilled professional to give some brief education and some practical tools while they're waiting. And you're probably seeing on average people who are less severe when they come into treatment, and maybe even the odd person for whom that was sufficient, and then they don't need treatment further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've sort of seen before with some clients where after going through the bright light therapy protocol, they've even been able to go off their antidepressants and things like that. And they're in just such a different place. So if we could even divert people from needing to seek further treatment, that can only be a good thing. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds like your research is not only contributing to a theoretical understanding of what's underlying depression and anxiety in adolescence and the driving force of sleep, but also how can we develop novel treatments that are going to result in, you know, really good outcomes, but without the resource use or without the cost. So it has that two-pronged approach, which I love. Thank Mm. you so much for coming on and sharing all your wisdom about sleep and particularly for, you know, young people and adolescents. It's been such a pleasure. And I think that, you know, on a personal note, I think I've learned a lot about sleep. And I think a lot of people will be motivated to seek some CPD. Mm. And I think this episode is a perfect example of why it counts as CPD. So (laughs) many cool little tidbits to take away, which is great. We're really grateful. Well, thank you so much for having me. And hopefully I have changed your listeners' perception of sleep. And yeah, hopefully there's an appreciation for just how important it is to assess and treat sleep problems. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Science of Therapy. Hope you enjoyed it and have lots of cool thoughts to take away. Don't forget to start doing some CPD for sleep. And if you felt this episode was worthy of CPD points, which it certainly was, you can claim them on our website. You can also find out more information about us and our past speakers and past episodes, scienceoftherapy.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we will catch you next season. season. (laughs) Bye.